There's nothing worse than being on a journey, having a long day of travel, and you're tired, you're worn out, and the thing that you want is a nice bed to sleep in, a hot meal, a shower, hopefully, and you get something like El Ramon. Um, you know, I know for me, I've had my own versions of El Ramon, and uh, one of those was growing up as a kid, my, my family and I, we would, we would travel up to Idaho where my folks have a little cabin. And uh, the journey takes around 18 hours or so. And we, we often would start really early in the morning and spend the night uh, in Salt Lake City if we could get there. And so this one time, you know, we loaded up the Suburban, we packed it full of stuff, uh, you know, things to the brim. And we get to Salt Lake City. And as a kid, as you know, when you go, when you go, for, go to stay in a hotel, at least this was true for me anyways, when I would stay at a hotel, it was, it was like going to Disneyland. It was the most exciting thing in the world. Everything felt fresh and new and interesting, and I loved it. Now it's, uh, it's, it's anything but that for me and staying in hotels. So we show up, and we think that we're going to find a room in Salt Lake City, no problem. And we drove around for about two hours, and there were no rooms at the end. And the reason for this is that there was a square dancing convention taking place in Salt Lake City. And we thought, you know, driving into Salt Lake, there's definitely going to be a room. And the things that surprised us more than the fact that there wasn't any room was that this many people actually enjoyed square dancing, and they would make an annual trek to Salt Lake City to experience something like this. It's true, there's nothing worse than traveling all day, being tired, haggard, and worn out, and finding an El Ramon. There's nothing better, though, than making the same kind of journey and feeling a sense of rest, of replenishment, of renewal. Welcome back to week three of Restless Pilgrims. It's great to see you guys all again. For those of you that are joining us, uh, the class uh, is, is built around the premise of if, if life is a journey, what does that mean for the Christian? What might we expect along the way? So we've been looking at a rediscovery of our roots, looking at stories from Scripture, from history, folks who can help inform and guide us in an understanding of our faith. We've been looking at life being a journey so that there are features, there are facets of a journey. If we are going to go hike Camelback Mountain this weekend, we could expect certain aspects of, of the terrain. We would know that we start here and it's going to look like this. This part of the trail might feel like this. And that metaphor, that distinction is really helpful because there are aspects, there are features to our terrain as Christians that whether you're Abraham or C.S. Lewis uh, or one of us sitting in this room, that all of us will encounter, all of us will experience to great degree and similarity. So the first week we talked about the idea that God is calling each of us onto a journey. He's calling us, like Abraham, to leave, um, to leave a mentality of life that says uh, life can be controlled by you as a human being, and then in particular that, that we're living life in a secular space. A secular space, similar to what Abraham lived in, uh, where life was dominated by the circle, a mentality that said, you're born, you live, and you die. God was calling Abraham out, not just a ver, not just to follow him into a land that he would show him. More importantly, he was calling him out of a mentality that said, this is how you look at life. Thomas Cahill says, this was the single most revolutionary act in human history, that all of life may have been seen like this, this, this circle of chaos, and God was inviting Abraham onto a journey. And God does that with us each and every day. He's calling us to leave a mentality that says, you can control life on your own, and life is essentially understood as you're born, you live, and you die. 
So we're invited to make a journey. Last week, we looked at the story of the Exodus, the Exodus being the primary salvation story in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, and that the features of the Exodus story are features that play themselves out in our lives. So God, like Abraham, was calling a larger group of people now to leave what had become their home. He was calling them out of, he was liberating them out of enslavement and calling them into the wilderness. But as one Russian theologian pointed out to us last week, though God wanted and wants freedom for each of us, freedom is a very difficult thing to obtain. And so what God will do in each of our lives that mirror the Exodus pattern is he will continually call us out of the enslavements, the attachments, the addictions that we're in. He'll arrange our life in such a way to bring about an ongoing liberation and ongoing freedom. So here's the thing. We look at life often where we, we find the challenges, the discomforts, like the wilderness, as simply that. I don't really like this coworker of mine. I can't believe I have to deal with this family member. Oh, can you even believe traffic? Even to the sufferings in our life. And God is using all of that to bring about our freedom. And that last class, it was really a challenge to look at our lives with a set of new eyes, if you will. That God wants to, because because he, he made you with the understanding of being fully human, being fully human means being fully free. So this week we're, we're going to talk about, uh, and this, this day was actually, this, this day was intentionally placed in week three uh, because of the importance of, I think, what scripture has to tell us, what history has to offer us through the lives of some saints about a crucial component of this. If it's true that we're on a journey how do we keep our hearts along the way? How do we not grow cold and bitter and cynical, distant towards God, distant towards each other? How does life move beyond just an experience of we're walking and walking and walking and walking? It's true there's nothing better, that, or there's nothing worse than experiencing an El Ramon at the end of the day, but there's also nothing better than experiencing re- replenishment, renewal, uh, and restoration as we continue on our journey. Um, Next slide. Uh, this, is, uh, this, this photo is taken from an area in Galicia. Galicia is a region of northwestern Spain where most of the Camino runs along. And Galicia, believe it or not, was at one time uh, settled and occupied by the Celts. So if, you were, if we could hear what music is being played right there, we would hear the sound of bagpipes. You would feel like you're in Scotland. Um, and, and pilgrims, as they, as they go to, as the pellegrinos will uh, go to these hostels, they might encounter something like this, a celebration that greets uh, the weary travelers to kind of show some of the traditions of uh, the local area. Next slide. Um, this is taken from inside a hostel uh, in Lagonde, and this house is actually run and owned by Campus Crusade, crew or agape as they're known in Europe, and what this ministry does is they offer a free place of rest and food uh, for the weary travelers. And you could suppose that all kinds of people are going to walk through their door. Uh, they're going to extend gracious hospitality to them, with the understanding that a lot of people are on the Camino, not simply to see the beautiful vistas, uh, get a lot of exercise, but they're on there for some deeply spiritual reasons. They're seeking, they're searching, and so it becomes an interesting way to uh, to offer a conversation. You know, as I was preparing for this class um, and, and looking at the story of Tom and his fellow pilgrims, um, a lot of their journey is spent uh, in, in their significant moments of connecting with one another around 
tables. It's interesting how uh, the table, the place of gathering for them, the place where they end their days and start their days is at a table. Some of their most meaningful conversation and connectedness and their bond is really forged around the table. These hostels uh, that are set up uh, along the Camino Santiago are a staple, a necessary staple and a feature for the pilgrims that walk along the way because it can't just be about walking. For the pilgrims to continue on, to go the next day and the next day and the next day, because after a while, the journey becomes long, it becomes difficult, it becomes rugged, and it can feel like the same thing over and over. So physically, yes, they need rest. Uh, Their feet are often probably full of blisters, they're sore, they're achy, they're tired. Uh, More importantly than that, they need their spirits held up so they can continue um, on the journey. And I thought about this in my own life, how so many of of my own uh, significant experiences have taken place around a table. Uh, I think about um, college graduation dinner, and my folks came out and they got to meet Uh, the friends that I had developed relationships with uh, over the course of three and a half years. And that moment still is so significant to me. I think of the times that our family gathers together. We have a sort of almost like a monthly or maybe bi-weekly thing at my folks' place. Uh, My mom calls it porch night, and we get together, and we just, as family, we hang out on my parents' porch, and we connect as family members. It's, it's a staple of the small group that I'm in, in the Vance-like small group. We start our small group uh, in their kitchen having food and drink together because, um, as, as David and Caroline will tell you, that's how we build a bond, and that's really, that's the heart of our community is right there. The teaching is important. Uh, the discussion of a Tim Keller lecture is important, but more importantly than that is what takes place around the table. So this is true with Tom. This is probably true in your own lives as well. If you think about some of those significant experiences around the table, whether it's at a wedding, a party, you can think of a lot of memories taking place. And in fact, think of your own house, for example, right now. One of the places in your home that you probably feel most yourself, most at ease, most relaxed is around your kitchen table. And that's a gathering place for you where you can kind of hang your hat and rest. It's necessary. It's important. So like the pilgrimage that Tom is on, the journey can be difficult and long. You know, it's true that life is tough. Life is hard. Life is demanding. It demands a lot of us. Uh, Some of you this evening, you come into a class, and uh, for any number of reasons, you might be feeling fried, worn thin, burnt out, frustrated, at your wit's end, and you think about all that life is demanding of you right now, whether it's your work, family relationships, etc., etc., and being a Christian in the midst of that can feel at times and seem at times so intensely difficult. So how do we do this thing? How do we walk on this journey of faith with God that's often, as Eugene Peterson tells us, it's a, it's a rugged journey. It's demanding. It demands a lot of us. And of course, obedience is a necessary component of that, which we'll discuss in greater detail next week. But for today, the proposition that I'd like to offer is this, is um, how do we enjoy the journey? How do we keep our hearts alive and full of vitality? We're going to look at a character from Scripture who can inform us in an understanding of that, and two saints who are alive today who can offer us some helpful insight. Um, The first place that we need to start with is this. In the book of Proverbs, the teacher tells his son, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the spring of life. 
Let's start with this question. What is the heart? Somebody, somebody or, or, or multiple uh, folks from the audience. What is the heart? Define it for me. This, this we're told, is, is of utmost importance in the book of Proverbs, that it's, it's not the mind, it's not the foot, it's the heart that is where the wellspring of life comes from. If we want to experience the vitality of life, so what's the heart? Yes. I love that. You know, the, the, the current, this is a tangent, but the current film that's being developed by Pixar, at least it's been this way for a while, is the story of a girl in junior high who's going from, I think, like Seattle to the Midwest, and the movie is about who gets control of central command. So they have a character of joy, a character of shame, and all these different emotions are vying for control of central command. That's great. How else do we define the heart? What is the heart? The immaterial part of us. Yeah, yeah, we can't fully touch, see. Is the heart fully emotion? Is it just emotion? When you think of the heart, is it just your emotions? The heart, as Scripture tells us, is the inner man or inner woman. It's the seat of our emotions. It's the central command. It's the, the true self, the real self, that God is continually revealing as he's liberating and freeing us. But it's, it's the fullness of who you are. So what the commentators say, the importance of this verse, is this. If your heart, if your heart is, is who you are, it's, it's the fullness of, of, of your being, it's the inner man, it's the inner woman, it's your deepest longings and desires as being as experiencing the ongoing redemption and purification of God. The word vigilance here is kind of akin to this word picture. Imagine, if you will, that you are a a king or a queen ruling over a kingdom. And inside your castle, you have a symbolic representation of that kingdom. That symbolic representation, for all intents and purposes, and this is great that we were having actually kind of a discussion about this this image just a moment ago, uh, is an oak tree. And this has been the symbolic representation of your kingdom since your kingdom began. What would you do as a ruler? Well, you would keep guard over it. You would watch it. You would protect it. You would care for it. You nourish it. This is what scripture is advocating that we do when we take care of the inner man or inner woman. Now, let me ask you this question. Would you say that most people do an adequate job of this? It's dismal at best, right? And you think of a lot of Christians, too. Is this something that uh, is often a discussion in your life in terms of how are you taking care of your heart? You're on a long journey. This is very demanding. What are you doing to take care of your heart to keep this journey, to keep going on this journey so you don't become cold, distant, and dead to the things of God? I don't think we take it seriously enough. We don't take seriously the realities of spiritual warfare in terms of uh, if, if Scripture is saying, guard it, you're, you're like a king or a queen over this castle, and there are invaders that want to come in and sack the castle. We don't take that seriously enough, and we don't take seriously that it needs ongoing uh, tending to. So Scripture is saying this is really important. This is, the, this is the key. This is one of the keys to maintaining a vitality with God as we walk this journey of faith. How do we do it? Well, there's a number of ways that Scripture offers us. Tonight, we're going to focus on two ways, two crucial ways, two traveling mercies that God gives us to enable and further and foster our hearts as we travel along the way. The first is 
uh, a place at the table. And the second is the gift of beauty. A place at the table and the gift of beauty. Let's just talk a moment about the role of the table and what it's meant historically and in Scripture. Uh, we've kind of agreed upon that the table has, 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 can have a great significance in our own lives. But scripturally speaking, it had tremendous significance. You see, when God made the world, he made it out of a, a heart of hesed, as we spoke about last week, a loving kindness where he would, uh, in his strength and in his tenderness, take care of his creation. God made a hospitable world for each of, each of us to live in. And not just a world that was hospitable in the sense of, oh, here's a cot for you to sleep on tonight, but a world that was rich in joy and wonder and human flourishing, that when God made all things, he made all things with the intent of creating human flourishing, that this would be an existence that was fully alive. And even after the marring of sin and the rebellion that takes place in Genesis 3, God continually extends hospitality towards his creation. An idea, this, this concept is one that... Um, I'm indebted to my mom. She, she really helped me understand and grasp this concept of, of that throughout Scripture, we, 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 we see this ongoing theme of God interacting, engaging with humanity with a heart of deep hospitality. So with Adam and Eve, uh, he, offers them, he offers them clothing. We see uh, with the Israelites how he makes a dwelling with the people of Israel. He builds a temple. He dwells within the temple. Christ himself dwells in human form, comes to live with us, and so much of his ministry and the significant moments of his ministry take place around what? The table. Why was the table so crucial in Scripture? Well, the table represented the coming together, the reconciliation of enemies, oftentimes. If you were invited to the table, that was seen as the great equalizer. So when God becomes Christ, comes to earth, and he has dinner with the tax collectors and the prostitutes. He was making an audacious statement, which was this, that I'm reconciling all people to me. I'm offering grace uh, to people, and those, can, and those that I'm offering grace to can come and sit at the table with me. This is something that David understood and grasped quite well. So David, as, you, as many of you know, David lived, uh, in many respects, many seasons of his life were incredibly difficult. One in particular was prior to his ascent to the throne. God had called him at a young age, uh, as you may recall, to the throne to rule over Israel. Uh, But that took quite some time for that to come to fruition. That took quite some time for that to happen. And for, uh, I believe, about a decade period, David was chased by the man that was once his friend, uh, a sort of mentor figure. David was chased by his king. Imagine, if you will, someone like that, a role model to an extent, a mentor in your life, wanted to hunt you down and kill you for a decade. And you spent your life for that season living in caves or living in, you know, uh, abandoned, you know, parking lots or whatnot, all in an effort to just stay alive and just survive. And David, during this time period, writes some of the, the greatest expressions of the heart that are found in the Psalms. And David was able to maintain a vitality in this rugged aspect of his journey. How was he able to do that? How was he able to do that while being, in a sense, homeless, on the run, always looking over his shoulder, not enacting revenge on the man that was trying to kill him? How did he not become bitter and, 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 and cold and hard in his heart to the things of God? Well, we need to look at uh, one of his psalms, and I am not prepared. Can I borrow a Bible from somebody? Thanks. Um, so we're going to look at, I think, next slide. Oh, you know, we got it up here. 
think we're good. Thank you. Um, David says this, and this is the key verse that we're going to look at tonight. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Context is so important here because David is not asking for semi-automatic weapons or a map to understand where Saul is at or a sense of increased knowledge um, or battle strategy. What David wants more than anything, what he realizes is so crucial, are three things in this verse. The first we find is this, is that David wants to dwell in the house of the Lord. This is what is of utmost importance to him, is to dwell in the house of the Lord. The second is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And the third, inquire in his temple. We're going to, again, focus on these two elements tonight. Dwell and gaze. Dwell and gaze. Okay, the first thing, dwell. David understood what so often we get wrong, and he continually brought a discipline of the heart to understand this truth is that you and I can't help but look for our ultimate home. We're in constant search of a place that we can dwell, a place that we can call home. And it manifests itself in a variety of ways. I I have a weird fascination with the show um, House Hunters, and I love watching the show. I love watching the iteration International House Hunters. And I find it so fascinating how you'll, you'll see a couple where uh, maybe they've worked in Milwaukee for several decades at a job that they don't really like uh, in the hopes that they can get enough money to move to the Bahamas to experience an island paradise. And it's always so interesting to kind of see the before and after of where they start and their hopes and dreams and their aspirations uh, for the house that they get. And then they get to the island and they see that this island is really, in a sense, kind of just like where they came from, full of problems, full of cranky real estate agents, I can't get three bathrooms. I can only get two with a kind of budget. And you see disappointment set in. And it's a fascinating case study in the reality that you and I cannot help but seek to dwell somewhere. Of course, we need a place to lay our head. But more importantly than that, what David is showing us here is that you and I were made for an ultimate dwelling. So we're going to inherently seek it. Why is it that after I've, I've moved into a place that spent some time working on that it never seems to be satisfying enough. You know, when I get that, when I get that, tele, when I get that, that flat screen that I've always wanted, then, then this place is really going to feel like home. You know, when I get that grill, then this place is really going to feel like home. And to an extent, that's, that's, that's fine. That's helpful, right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with taking care of our homes. But what's happening beneath all of that is a longing, as we talked about last week, a longing that won't quiet, a longing to experience ultimate Home. And David realized that uh, though he, in, at this particular season of his life, wasn't going to experience the palace yet, what he knew is that his heart had to first find its ultimate and true rest uh, in a home that no palace uh, could rival. One commentator puts it like this, um, the location doesn't matter. Its fulfillment depends not on where we are, Uh, but on what we think and feel. For every place is God's house, and what the psalmist desires is that he should be able to keep up unbroken consciousness of being in God's presence and should always be in touch with him. For David, his true home, his ultimate home, where his heart, his inner man would reside, would be in the house of the Lord. Not just one day, not just in death, although that would be true, 
but currently, a present reality, that if he was going to make it, if he was going to keep a connectedness and an intimacy with God, he had to continually remind himself that my ultimate home, though I live in a palace or a cave, my ultimate home (coughs) is with the Lord. Excuse me. You know, it's interesting. Uh, The commentaries also talk about how in this verse... um, it's uh, it, it's very it's very similar to um, an Oriental habit of a man uh, of giving a man who took refuge in the tent of a sheik the guest rights of protection and provision and friendship and in this context it was often done where an enemy would come into the tent and that enemy was treated now as a friend so David also understands that though he is an enemy to Saul. He was a greater enemy to God and that God is offering him his hospitality that David realizes to keep his heart alive and afresh, he needs the hospitality of God. He needs God's care and protection over his heart because it just can't come from him alone. The strength, ultimately, the provision, the security, the protection has to come through the Lord. This idea of true home, of ultimate home, what was David, what did David realize? What was he tapping into? What is this need? Why is there a sense of restlessness within each of us? Why do the, why do the folks in the House Hunter show, why is that one home never fully satisfying? And why is it when we move from one home to the next, we go from one hotel to the next, that there's something that always seems to be missing? David understood shalom. What is it? Well, when God created the world, when God created the, the world out of a hospitable heart, he created a world of shalom. And we have, in a sense, we can have a thin understanding of what that is and the implications of that. Uh, Paul David Tripp quotes shalom as this. In short, it means peace, but peace is only a portion of the definition. Shalom could better be described as complete harmony or the absence of any discord. Those feelings of ongoing restlessness that you and I have inside, in a sense, will never, will never go away in this lifetime because you and I were created to live in a world of shalom. We were made to sit at the table with God, at the great banquet feast with the Lord, uh, and celebrate for all of eternity with unbroken, uh, with a sense of, of, of an ongoing harmonious rhythm, without any discord, full of peace. We long for that. We look for that. And so often what we do is we put that hope in the wrong thing. We think that if, if I live in this state or this city, or if I just move out of this state or this city, then I will finally experience the shalom that I've always been looking for. But it never lasts. It never fully, it never fully lasts. So the application is this, is that if we do as David did, if we make our home around the table with God, if we continually invite our hearts to experience his rest and his shalom, then we begin to experience uh, that dwelling sense that David had, that vitality of heart that kept him going. But what are some practical ways that we can really tap into this? We're going to talk about this um, in just a moment. So let's take uh, about a five-minute break. We'll stay on the, I think, the break slide here. Okay. Um, Welcome back. So we're looking, at, we're looking at David and how David um, kept his heart alive. Um, and he really understood that he needed to um, have an ongoing place at the table. That like we do, every day we come home, and for most of us we have dinner around the table. Well, that's a gathering place. It's a place of rest, of replenishment, of renewal 
for David, that took on an inner reality in his heart with God, that he had to experience that rest with the Lord. How do we do this, though? Um, it's one thing to say and to talk about, um, and it can feel maybe like somewhat of a fuzzy concept. Uh, I want to give you um, a couple of sort of takeaways or applications that were in large part inspired by a book that I highly recommend called Bread and Wine, written by a Chicago-based writer. Her name is Shauna, and I don't know how to pronounce her last name, so I may be butchering it, Nyquist. Um, Shauna has a really interesting story. She's the daughter of Bill Hybels. For those of you that don't know, Bill Hybels, uh, lead pastor at Willow Creek Church. She's a terrific writer. She's very, uh, she's very funny and very open about everything from talking about the challenges of food, living in a culture where there's a lot of shame around food, a lot of shame around eating, um, talking about her own experiences of, of infertility, wanting to be a mom and, and the struggles through that. She makes this beautiful, this simple, seemingly simple, but beautiful statement. And she talks about this need of being around the table. For Shauna, being around the table is the place where she most connects with God. Um, For her, it's like it was with Tom on the journey where there's a connectedness that happens and she, she feels something and experiences something more dynamic there than she does anywhere else and she feels God's presence. And she says this, in admitting and nourishing our hunger, she says that we're hungry and that's okay. We're hungry and that's okay. It reminds me of a statement that Larry Crabb made in his book, uh, Inside Out. And he says that, uh, you know, when Jesus talked about, come all you who are weary and, and, and thirsty, Jesus never condemned anybody for being thirsty. What Jesus was doing, as Larry Crabb points out, is he was communicating a reality that like admitting our physical hunger, which every human being on the planet has throughout the course of our day, that is a tangible representation and connection to our hunger for God, that we're hungry and that's okay. And you think about being hungry, it's, it's all the time. It's, it's ongoing. And that's how we should think about our relationship with God and our hearts is that we're we never stop being hungry. We never stop needing and longing that place around the table. But we unfortunately have an anemic spiritual diet where we may spend a day with the Lord and spend some time with him. Or when we do spend time with him, it would be like a kid you know, wanting to, to hang out with his dad. And the only thing that the kid talks about the entire time is when is he going to get his candy? When are you going to give me my candy? I want my candy. And, you know, the loving father, of course, would probably, he might give the kid some candy, he would give him, you know, a good father would give him better, better food than that. But what the father wants is to offer himself, to offer his love. And how often do we do that? Do we not approach the table like we would with our closest friends, our closest family? Do we treat God like that when we go to him? And more importantly, do we look to experience the hospitality that God wants to offer each of us? Have you ever thought of God being hospitable, that God wants to care for you as if you were staying, as if you were a guest at the Ritz-Carlton. You show up to the Ritz-Carlton, and let's say you're a VIP member. They're going to put out all the stops. That doesn't pale in comparison to how God wants to care for you and for your hearts because he realizes just how difficult and demanding life is this side of Eden. We're hungry, and that's okay. Shauna says this, to feed one's body, to admit one's hunger, to look to one's appetite straight in the eye without fear or shame, this is controversial work in our culture. 
Part of being a Christian means practicing grace in all sorts of big and small and daily ways. And my body gives me the opportunity to demonstrate grace, to make peace with my imperfection every time I see myself in the mirror. On my best days, I practice grace and patience with myself, knowing that I can't extend grace and patience if I haven't tasted it. What Shauna is telling us is that we, we need this grace. We need to experience the hospitality of God. We need to ask God, show me, God, how you want to be hospitable to me in my life. How are you taking care of me? You know, it's interesting throughout Scripture, you see moments like this where um, Elijah, after the, the, the battle at Mount Carmel, um, he's despondent, he's depressed. This really incredible ministry moment. And what does God do? He shows up uh, in the form of the angel of the Lord, and he makes Elijah a meal. He takes care of him. And think about the moment that takes place with, um, with Peter. After the worst moment in his life, he, he betrayed his master, his closest friend, he betrayed his Lord. What does Jesus do? He makes him breakfast. He makes all of them breakfast on the beach. God cares about the incarnational realities that you and I live in every day. And so our hunger is a direct point in connection to our hunger for God. We're hungry, and that's okay. The second is this, is that we were made to create space at the table. It's one thing, and it's a true and necessary thing, that we are invited to the table. God is asking us to come to the table, to sit at the table, but he's also asking us to create space at the table. You see, one of the most tangible ways that you can experience this dwelling, this shalom that David understood so well, is to offer it to others. And in fact, I think that's the best way to experience this. Shauna talks about hospitality, and we think about hospitality, and this is a significant part of it. We think about inviting people into our homes. We have a meal for them. We invite them in. Um, we enjoy the time that we spend with them. And that's, that is such a crucial aspect of what it means to be a Christian. But being hospitable isn't just solely about inviting people into our home, though that is a part of it. Shauna gives us a good insight to this. She says that what people are craving isn't perfection. People aren't longing to be impressed. They're longing to feel like they're home. Have you ever gone to someone's house and you felt like you could just be yourself? You could be messy, you could be open, you could be honest, you felt safe. And I'm sure some of that, there was trust that was built over time because of that relationship. What God is asking each of us to do is to become more and more hospitable to people. Gary Thomas terms it like this. He's, he's saying that God wants us to become God oases, where people who live life beneath the circle, live life in the tumult of, of, of chaos, where there's really nothing other than you're born, you live, and you die. If we get to participate in being similar to a great place of rest and respite for the weary travelers, we get to show the heart of God to a world that is desperately restless, that is desperately tired, that is famished, and has never been uh, fully satisfied. So, how do we do that? Well, I think we begin to ask God and ourselves is, am I a life-giving person? When someone interacts with me by the way that I relate to them, not just by opening up my home to them, though again, that is important, do I reflect this spirit of being a God oasis? Can people find shelter to an extent in the way that I love and relate and engage with them? And that's a really great question for all of us to continually ask. You're hungry and that's okay. And we go to be filled by God, but we also go to create a space at the table. Okay, uh, next slide. Uh, David 
in this psalm also realized that to keep going, uh, he needed another component, um, the component of beauty. And Dostoevsky says this, that beauty will save the world. David understood that to keep his heart alive, he had to have a proper understanding of beauty, that this was a man who was a warrior, who was, who was bloodied in battle. He had killed people. Uh, he was a leader, and yet beauty was at the core of who he was. What, wh- why was this so important? So what, we were, what we're going to do now is we're going to kind of shift gears, and we're going to talk about what is beauty, what beauty is, uh, what beauty is not, and the problem of beauty. So what beauty is, what beauty is not, and the problem of, of beauty. So let me ask you this. Um, define the word beauty for me. How would you define it? What is beauty? Creation as it was meant to be. Perfection. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, look at a beautiful car. You know, like a classic car, one that's just totally restored and beautiful. Yeah. Look at a flower. It's beautiful. A tree. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a farmer. Yeah. Yeah, there's something that's, that's, that's right with the world there. You're saying, Jeff? Oh, I just thought of the word delight. Delight. Yeah. yeah. When you hear the word beauty, do you have a hard time with the word? Meaning, is there something about the word that feels like, uh, this doesn't really occupy a space in my life every day. Um, When I think of the word beauty, perhaps I think of the makeup counter at Macy's, or I think of pageants, uh, or I think of an animated film with a young girl falling in love with some sort of monster. Um, But other than that, the word beauty... I don't know if that really occupies an ongoing sense of my life. Yeah. Well, is it in the eye of the beholder? Is it in the eye of the beholder? Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting to think about uh, who is the beholder and what does their eye see? Yeah. Yeah. Do we have a wrong understanding of what beauty is? Yeah. Right. We, we, we often talk about things like uh, there's true beauty, there's inner beauty, there's... Um, the bold and the beautiful. But it perhaps can be a word that maybe it makes us uncomfortable. And there's something to it where it just doesn't seem like it operates in an ongoing category of our life. But David understood that this was absolutely critical. If you don't understand beauty, you're not going to understand the gospel. Yes. Yeah. Why is that, though? Why, why, why does that feel like that's the case? Yeah. 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 That's good. No burdens. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the problem of beauty. And Dostoevsky illustrates this really well. If he's saying that beauty will save the world, what he's also inferring is that there's a fight for the world. Um, And beauty uh, is something that we as a culture are frightened of. We, are, we, we, we misunderstand to a great deal. Um, it makes us deeply nervous. We're trying to control it, to use it, to manipulate it. Um, we don't know how to put a handle on it, and so it might be placed in sort of cheapened categories, like it's just for pageants, and that's it. Or maybe it's just in this particular animated film. 
But what Dostoevsky is, is telling us here is that there is a, if beauty will save the world, then there is a fight for it. And that so much of the understanding of this world has to do with the understanding of what this fight is about and the struggle beneath beauty. You see, when, when, when creation happened before humanity, God created one of the most beautiful beings. And this being was, uh, imagine if you will, Pavarotti meets Bono to the trillionth power. That's who Lucifer was. Lucifer, the captain, uh, the head of the angels, was endowed with a kind of with a kind of beauty that was unparalleled. And it was something that he took such great pride in to an extent that it, he allowed it to twist him. He became twisted. He became full of pride. And one of the most beautiful beings sought to usurp the creator of all things. And so he convinced many angels to follow him over this question of beauty, meaning uh, who is the most glorious in the universe? Is it this God that is telling you to follow him, or is it someone like me? You see, Lucifer wasn't always bad. He was once good, and he was once beautiful. But that beauty became deeply marred and twisted. Let me ask you this. Why is there such a pervasiveness of pornography and sex trafficking? And why is it that so much of the music and movies and television shows and perhaps what we see in the art world, why does that often make you uncomfortable? Or why is it that it can be uh, just so distasteful or abhorrent? What is happening there? Is it just because it's the bad people in Nineveh that are creating the bad shows, the bad films, the bad music? Or is it something deeper? What you have to understand is that beneath all of that is this violent, desperate struggle over who answers the question of what is most beautiful in the world. Is it God or is it Satan? Is it God or is it Satan? And Satan, as the prince of the world, is vying for anything but God gets the attention. All the beauty is deflected away from God. So whether it's onto a thin understanding of what we deem as physical attractiveness to a, an abuse of beauty where um, young women are put in trafficking. Beneath all of that is a significant cosmic battle over the question of who receives the ultimate praise for who is most beautiful. Is it God or is it Satan? And that battle affects every aspect of our lives. So this next aspect is what, what before we define what beauty is, we have to define what beauty is not. And this, this portion of the class is inspired by a lecture given by Barbara Nicolosi, an executive in Hollywood, a screenwriter, a devout Christian. And she says this, beauty is not cute, it's not easy, it's not banal, it's not silly, the beautiful is not sweet or nice, it's not facile, and it's not unthreatening. Uh, she goes on to talk about how Thomas Aquinas gives us a really great definition of what beauty is. Uh, the beautiful, he said, is this. It's categorized by, uh, next slide, wholeness, harmony, and radiance. To understand beauty, you have to understand the makeup of beauty, which is this, wholeness, harmony, and radiance. Okay, let's define the first part of beauty, wholeness. Wholeness means nothing is missing. All parts are present, suggesting completeness. Wholeness also means there is nothing extra, nothing gratuitous that isn't an essential part of the whole. Have any of you seen the Sistine Chapel, uh, Sistine Chapel in person? 
or have been to Italy and seen some of those. Did you stand in front of that and go, you know what? I think that that could have used maybe a little bit over there and yeah, he didn't quite finish that over there. No, you probably were like, wow, that's incredible. How did he do that on his back for two years? Or if you've gone to the Grand Canyon, have you ever thought, you know, we could use just a little more sunset over here. It's, it's kind of blinding my eyes over there. And yeah, I don't know about that. It's pretty, it's, pretty, uh, it's pretty magnificent. Maybe it's a little too magnificent. Kind of being overwhelmed by this. No, you're, you're overwhelmed by it. Why? Because, because as uh, Thomas Aquinas says, is that it's, there's nothing else. You can't add anything to it. It's, as Bud was saying, it's perfect as it is. It's complete as it is. Um, examples of wholeness. Well, we've already talked about some, right? Beauty isn't necessarily just a work of art. It can be that shiny new Camaro that comes on the, the factory floor, and it's just, look at all the work that's gone, gone on to designing this car. Every stitch in the fabric, the color of paint, the red that's there, it's just, it's perfect. It's beautiful. Or think of your favorite movie. Um, you got to the end of it, and you were so overcome with emotion, you probably never thought, you know... In Schindler's List, I think maybe they could have used a little bit more color in there. Just a, you know that they had the one little girl in the dress, but if they no, you you were you were overwhelmed by it. It was it gave you a sense of being whole. The second part, harmony. Harmony is this: every part brings out the best in all the other parts, and there is no domination or submission. Uh, this is what's really cool about harmony, like wholeness, is that uh, it can be a lot of different things, right? So. Um, have you ever seen, uh, ever watched like a, like a football game, a basketball game, and for whatever reason, it was that night, it was the night of the, you know, the NCAA winning championship game. The players, it was like they were close to perfection, and they all just moved and worked with one another. That was, it, it, was, it was just mesmerizing. That's an example of wholeness. Or you think about like going to the symphony in a great orchestra, and they all work in concert, pun intended, together with one another, and it's it's... It's like something else took over. It takes your breath away. The third aspect, radiance. This is cool. Radiance is that when we experience a beautiful object, it communicates something profound to us, some kind of moral, spiritual, or intellectual enlightenment. When you encounter the beautiful, you experience it calling to you personally. So do any of you have any, uh, any favorite musicians, any favorite bands, and their, their music, it's like, man, this was like the soundtrack to my life. Uh, this was true for me. I lived in New York for a number of years, and prior to New York, I wasn't really into jazz, but after living there, man, I fell in love with some of these jazz artists because it was like they, they, they were able to interpret through music what life was like in New York, and I loved it. It was like they were speaking this experience. They were speaking it to me, and I'm sure you can think of that. Uh, whether it's, uh, in, it's in music, a, a great book that you love, poetry or whatnot. Um, this is really interesting, and this is, uh, the current Pope says this, is that the word beauty in the Greek actually means call. Uh, so it's in the moment of the experience of beauty, we feel that the revelation has our name stamped on it, where it's like something outside of us is calling and speaking to us personally and directly. You start to see how dimensional beauty is, and can you start to see why there's such a significant fight around the understanding of beauty? Because what is our tendency? Well, let's put it all together. What is our tendency, and, and how do we understand that and putting it all together? Well, the first thing is this. When we see something that is whole, it does two things to us. The first is that it inspires that wow, awestruck longing. 
but it also reminds us of an incompleteness within ourselves because deep down within every human heart, we all realize that something about us in life is not complete. Something about us is missing. We are all creatures who have been cut off from our source. There is always a partial emptiness, a longing that can only be filled by divine love. What happens, though? What do we do in place of that? Well, so often what we do is we don't, we don't put those longings, that thirst, that hunger to God. We put it on another person, perhaps. I've seen the film Jerry Maguire, You Complete Me. Um, great film, but a total lie that another human being can, compute, can complete another human being. But what makes that movie in particular so difficult is that there is beauty that's represented in there, right? Because we do get moments of completeness with two people that were once in love, broken apart, that come back together. So we feel some of that, and we hear those words, and we're like, yeah, I know that's not true, but it feels true. Why does it feel true? Because part of it is true. It's just not the ultimate truth and the full truth. What about harmony? What do we get from harmony? When we experience harmony, we feel a sense of joy because we were created to dwell in community. The heart of the universe was made in love, in a triune God, the universe was made in community. We were made for that. We were made for harmony, made for community. And lastly, what do we get from radiance? Well, in radiance, what we experience every time in those moments when we feel like beauty is calling to us is that ultimately what we long for in our own respective destinies is for someone outside of us to tell us that we're worth something. We need the ultimate beautiful someone to tell us that each of us will one day be whole, harmonious, uh, and radiant. And David understood this. David understood the power that beauty had because we tend to fall in one of two camps. We either place very little emphasis or importance on beauty or we place way too much. But the gospel gives us the tools, as David reminds us, to place our ultimate hope, our ultimate understanding of beauty in God. I wanted to give a, share an example uh, in closing tonight of someone who I think uh, gives an example of, of what it looks like to, to live out the implications of beauty and also hospitality. Um, following the events of 9-11 in, in New York, it was the ultimate act, you could say, of anti-shalom, where you had a group of people that were making a statement that said, uh, these people don't deserve to live. They don't deserve to exist. It was the antithesis of completion of shalom. And there was an artist who lives and worked uh, for a time in Manhattan, uh, a Japanese artist by the name of Mako Fujimoro, uh, a Christian who, um, like other, other people in the city, really struggled with how do we respond in this kind of moment. Because a lot of his colleagues, uh, a lot of his friends, many of who were not Christians, thought this is sort of silly for us to think about painting. After something like this happens, what's the point of even, like, making sculptures or painting? I mean, does it really have any lasting significance? And Mako really struggled with this. How do I, as a Christian, who's not living in the full experience of shalom, who works in the realm of beauty, how do I respond to this? And so he sent this email, uh, and he said, he said this in his email, create we must and respond to this dark hour. The world needs artists who, did, who dedicated themselves to communicate the images of shalom. Jesus is the shalom. We need to collaborate within our communities to respond individually to give the world a shalom vision. 
And so what Mako did was he opened up a, an art exhibition called Tribeca Temporary. His studio space was located just a few blocks north of uh, the World Trade Center area. And what he did in Tribeca Temporary was to recreate a Japanese tea house. Mako, uh, being Japanese, understood the importance of tea in the Japanese culture, um, but understood more so what that represented and what it could represent uh, to a place like Manhattan. And he talks about in his book, Refractions, uh, the experience of developing and making this installation and the dialogue and the conversation and the place of healing that he hoped that this would become. And what he says is that uh, the origins of tea in Japan uh, that, that go back to the 16th century were, was made and developed by a, gem, a gentleman who wanted to see tea making as an art form. And one of his wives was one of the first converts to Christianity in Japan. And you can't help but see the influence here when Mako says this, that his tea would be an art form, a form of communication, equalizing any who took part, shogun or farmer, male or female. As a cup of green tea was passed, the tea house would become a place of shalom. What Mako realized in, in a place like New York following the events of 9-11 is that people were struggling with a sense of home. The world felt dangerous and unsafe. It felt anti-shalom. It was also an incredibly ugly act. And to respond appropriately, he wanted to offer people a place where they could really wrestle through this. And so when you entered into this exhibit, like you would do when you entered into a tea house in the 16th century, is you had to take off your weapon because the size of a door into a Japanese tea house uh, was maybe you know a few, a, little, a few feet bigger than like a doggy door. So for us, we would have to take off our cell phones as we entered into as we entered into the tea house. Um, but Mako, in doing this, created a safe place for struggle, reconciliation, and healing. Uh, and though he's, he's making this claim in this email, he's, he's, he's calling artists, really it's a call for all of us, is that we live in a world, a world that lives amidst a, a, a broken and marred struggle over the definition of beauty, who will ultimately receive the glory. And so we struggle in our understanding of that, and we often put our or hope in the wrong understanding of what beauty is. If I finally meet this person, I will be full. Uh, if I experience this house, this job, this vacation, that will give me the harmony, the wholeness, the completion. And what David is telling us is that we first have to put that in God. Beauty in and of itself is not a bad thing. In fact, it's a glorious thing because it gives us pause to give that praise to our creator and to enjoy it for what it's meant to be. So we can be in a relationship and enjoy that person. We can, be, we can experience a, a great work of art without deifying the artist or the work itself. But we can only do that if we put beauty in its proper place. And what Mako is also reminding us and calling us to is to be reconcilers in a world with what we do and how we live our lives because our lives are representations of shalom. Do we, in, in how we engage the world, do we, do we, do we take that reality seriously? And, and the only way that we can do that is to realize that uh, the one that was most beautiful became most ugly on our behalf. He took all that was ugly in this world onto himself, all the, all the effects and devastation of sin, so that we could experience wholeness, harmony, radiance, God left his home and came to earth and experienced homelessness. Jesus didn't have a place to live so that we could one day have a place of ultimate rest and fullness. 
And as that reality becomes more real in our hearts, then, like David, we can, we can say with all earnestness that one thing I seek is to dwell in the house of the Lord, not in this HG International's house hunters, if I finally get that, that we know that that is where we're going to find our ultimate satisfaction. And the ultimate beauty that our hearts long and seek for is found in the Lord. And so tonight what I'd like to do in closing is to, uh, to recreate what Christ did for us in the ultimate tea house, if you will, experience when he had the last, uh, his last supper with his disciples. He didn't take them to a great PowerPoint presenta- presentation or a lecture. Uh, he didn't walk them through the scrolls. He did the most intimate thing that he could in that setting, which was have a meal with his disciples. Uh, and it's how he spent his last time before he ascended into heaven was having a meal. And that's what he's asking us to do every time we partake of communion is he's saying, remember, you were once an enemy of me, but I became a reconciler of shalom to you. Go and do the same. So tonight after I pray, um, if you guys want to have uh, communion, I invite you to take communion. Um, and just think and meditate on, on some of what we've talked about. Um, and, and really the takeaways are, are what we've talked about tonight is um, where, where do we need to experience God's, God's rest in our journey? And ask God that over this next week. God, how are you, how are you trying to uh, show me how you're taking care of me? And therefore, how can I do that for others in my life? God, where have I misunderstand and perhaps abused an understanding of beauty? Have I not taken it seriously enough? Uh, do I put overemphasis on that? And God, what are you speaking and telling me in my own heart about that? So I'll pray, and then uh, if you guys want to uh, experience in communion. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you, God, that you've, you've made us for rest, for wholeness, for completeness, for radiance, God. Uh, we confess, God, that we... Um, man, we, we really struggle to get this thing right all the time. Uh, we struggle to get uh, what's, what's, what's going to hold the most attention in our hearts, Lord, and we so often look to other things but you. And we're constantly restless, constantly looking for the next thing. Um, and God, we can't do, we can't experience your rest along the way without you. And so we, we admit our complete dependence on you. Um, God, we ask that you would speak to each of us. Uh, bring ongoing freedom for my brothers and sisters and myself. Um, God, through all that you're teaching us, we pray this, Lord, in your name. Amen.